Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an Upstate doctor goes over the new way of storing and accessing your medical records using your iPhone. Only after you ask for your records would we give you a copy. That copy is uh, placed on your phone, and indeed, you can break that link anytime you want and remove that information. Two ethics experts discuss a real-life situation that underscores the need to choose your healthcare proxy wisely. The healthcare proxy was actually signing the patient's pension checks over to herself while the patient was in the hospital. And a scientist who specializes in nutrition explains why we need to pay more attention to cobalt. So together with B12, cobalt helps regulate and stimulate the body to produce certain enzyme hormones. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a real-life ethics consult, a case which will remind you of the need to choose wisely when you designate a healthcare proxy. Then, we'll learn about an underappreciated nutrient that has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. But first, we'll get an overview of what to do about one of the most common of health maladies, back pain. Now there's a way for iPhone users to store their health records from multiple medical providers in one handy place on their iPhone. Upstate Medical University has partnered with Apple to support health records, and here to tell about it is Dr. Neil Seidberg. Thanks for being here. Oh, very happy to be here this morning. Now, I should let uh, listeners know that you're a pediatrician by training and you specialize in critical care, but you're also an expert in technology. And you um, helped the hospital transition into electronic medical records a few years ago. And now we have this established relationship with Apple. So uh, we're not the only healthcare institution that's doing this. Um, several others are on the list, right? Yeah, so this is a uh, new uh, venture that Apple has uh, put forward with their last release of their operating system. Um, a little less than a year ago, which allows um, institutions and other offices to work with Apple and um, for patients that want to, they can move medical records into a app on the on an iPhone that allows them to bring all of their health information together. And we think this is a way to enhance a patient's opportunity to take responsibility and own their own information in partnership with us in their health. And it's voluntary, obviously. This is so. very voluntary, yes. So people may be familiar, um, or we hope they're familiar with my chart, which came about 2012, was that? Correct. 2012, we were the uh, first hospital in this area to institute my chart as a portal to your medical records. Before that, you had to go to medical records and request release of records, either on paper, and then later it was available as PDF files, but you had to go someplace to request them. For much of your medical records, you can still do this, and you could do it today if you wanted, but we wanted an electronic way for patients to be able to get their records from home, either through a secure website or through an app, and this is where MyChart comes from. MyChart allows you to pull in things like medication lists, like uh, uh, lab results, radiology results. You can communicate with your provider, request, uh, request appointments. It allows a connection to your uh, upstate providers. So what's the difference between my chart and the app 
on the Apple iPhone where I can now store my medical records. So this is what we think is, is potentially exciting for the future here. The Apple's app is a system that allows you to bring not just your medical records in, but to bring in information from other sources about your health. People who are trying to lose weight might be using a calorie tracking software, and their calories that they intake go into the same go into the same location. Uh, the heart rates that Fitbits and other things store again can go into this central repository, and ultimately it allows a patient to bring all of their information together. Indeed, if they were to go to other medical centers that uh, use the same uh, use the same sorts of partnerships with Apple. All those visits would commingle with our visits. So it wouldn't just be, I have to go to one location to look here and then another location for other material, but it gives them an opportunity to see everything chronologically in time. So the, if, if I'm in my chart, the data from my chart is on the upstate servers and it's kept there, right? So very, yes. So security is, of course, is uh, very important to both us and ultimately to Apple and, and most important to the user. Staying within my chart, there are things within my chart that you will always want to do within my chart. All communication to your providers are through my chart. Uh, anything to do with billing and uh, paying for services, requesting appointments is all through my chart. My chart is a system that keeps all of your information securely stored within the upstate computer system. Nothing ever gets to your phone other than as a display or your or the website again other than as a as a display. It's secure, it's safe, it stays there. Should you want to mingle it with your other information, you can choose to bring it from my chart out, that's this partnership with Apple, and put it on your phone. Should you do that, uh, it, it never touches Apple servers, it's a direct connection to your phone, and it's secured behind the encryption on your phone as well as uh, any passwords that or face uh, face identification, fingerprint identification that you've set up. Uh, but should you not choose that, all of your information is always securely available through MyChart. So how does one go about if they haven't already signed up for MyChart? So MyChart is available in a number of different ways to get access to it. Uh, one primary way that they, you can get it is right when you see one of our providers. We will give you an after-visit summary. At the bottom of that after-visit summary is instructions for how to sign up with the code just for you. Uh, to get you securely signed up. From our website, you can go to the MyChart page and you can also sign up for there and request an account. So that's from the upstate.edu website? Correct. Okay. Correct. So there's numerous ways of doing that. Good. So if I choose to go on and use the Apple app, um, it's sort of like going and taking my medical records, getting copies of them from the hospital and taking them, but instead of having physical copies, they're being put like on my phone. That's exactly the metaphor. The metaphor is you come to us, you ask for your records, and only after you ask for your records would we give you a copy. That copy is uh, placed on your phone. And indeed, you can break that link anytime you want and remove that information if you don't want it there at any, at any time. Now, do I need to go back each, after every doctor's visit, do I have to go back and request again, or does it automatically? This is one of the nice features that's built into it, is it allows uh, the system, when you open up Apple's Health app, to make a request on its own uh, to update any time that, that you look into it, similar to you know, a, a mail program updating, looking for new mail messages. Same kind of idea. It'll look for new visits you had with the doctors, new results that have been released, and allow you to uh, 
um, allow you to uh, keep an updated look at any time there. Now, right now, it's only for Apple. It, it's not available on Android or any other devices. It's at just this time. It's it's uh, limited to Apple based on the um, on the substructure that they've created. Uh, it may come to other devices at other time. It would have to be through those. Uh, vendors and ultimately, for example, for Android devices, it would have to come as a as a project that Google would work on. Okay, well, can we can we walk listeners through how to sign up? Absolutely. If they have an iPhone, does it work on iPads too, or is it just iPhones? The Health app uh, primarily is designed to work on the iPhone, so it's meant for the iPhone. Um, and it comes preloaded on the phone. It's preloaded. Right? You don't have to purchase anything when you per- when you have your phone. It's just there, and. Uh, you can set it up instantly to do some really neat things uh, just by itself without connecting it. Think things again like storing uh, calorie intakes if you're interested, things like steps, heart rate, whatever you want to do. It also allows you uh, something that we find useful to set up a virtual medical ID band on it, for example. So should you end up in an emergency room unable to speak but you have your phone, there's a way for us to get that information and, and learn. For like know, emergency for contacts, emergency contacts and, and allergies those. or whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. To set it up, um, it's very simple. You just need to go into the app itself, go into the health records section, and initiate a contact. It asks for which institution you're looking for. You choose Upstate uh, and uh, sign off with your Upstate password which again does not go to Apple, goes straight to us, and uh, the connection is made. It's very quick. It's very simple. Good to know. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Neil Seidberg about a new way to store your medical records. Um, but I also want to talk to you sort of in general about, um, I mean, electronic availability and what that's doing for patients' lives now and in the future. So this Apple app is one thing, but what else have we got going on or coming up? So we have a number of new things that we're working on that we're very excited about. One of the things as we look into the future that we want to do is make information uh, that the patient has available to your doctor. So one of the first things that we'll hopefully be working on over the near term here is the ability to bring in information. If you were to store blood pressures, for example, in Apple's Health app, we might be able to bring those directly into our electronic medical record and see what your blood pressures have been doing, number of steps you've been taking, or other information. How do you feel today? All those sorts of different fields we could use. Or if and you're using a calorie tracking app, you ex- could send that to your doctor if you wanted. Exactly. Or- and, and, you know, my doctor can look at me and say, you know, gosh, Neil, I see you've been having a little too many calories on weekends, and perhaps that's not a good idea. Again, this is something that would be absolutely elective. We would not require, nor would we be seeking information from patients uh, without their consent, knowledge, and, and, uh, and wanting to participate in such a program. Um, additionally, using my chart, uh, we have a new feature that we've put out, which uh, I would think would be exciting for travelers, which is when they go to another city, for example, uh, traveling to someplace warm in the winter, uh, if they should happen to have the misfortune of becoming ill, uh, they can actually create a one-time access to our electronic medical record through my chart, which allows the provider there to see all the same information that is in my chart. So they can see what their problems are, what medications we know them to be on, any allergies, um, and any testing results that might be there to help them better inform their decision-making, even though they don't know you as a patient. And um, at the end of that, they can even write a brief note back to us saying, you know, that they saw 
they saw our patient and here's what they found and uh, uh, when you return we'll have that information available to us. Uh, the last thing that we're starting, which I'm very excited about this fall, is putting medical records, information like MyChart, in the hands of our inpatients. And this is through a project called MyChart Bedside. It's part of our electronic medical record. Patients who bring an iPad with them, which is many of our patients these days, will be able to download an app to their iPad called MyChart Bedside, and we'll be able to create a secure link to that app on their device, which will allow them to see their test results the day that, they, that they're drawn. Uh, they can request things such as, I need a drink without hitting a call bell. They can see what's scheduled. They will know that they have medications due around 9 a.m., for example, or if they were waiting for surgery, that the surgery is scheduled around 3 p.m. tomorrow, and things like that, which, again, help them take control of their stay and hopefully help them be a better partner for their health and shorten their times in the hospital. It sounds like that would increase efficiency, and it sounds, you know, um, Star trek -y or space age -y or whatever, but um, it also sounds like it might have the risk of decreasing the FaceTime with providers. We're hoping it actually increases FaceTime for providers. One of the things that I go in and out of rooms of my patients and talk to their parents that happens is we, I come in on my schedule when I'm rounding or when I'm coming by. They may be there. They may not be there. Uh, they have a... Uh, uh, they have a list of questions, perhaps, that they have in their head, but by the time I've walked into the room, half the questions are forgotten. This will give them, the families or the patients, an opportunity to write down their questions, maybe pose some of them beforehand. Um, it also... Uh, and that, them, that would allow you as the provider to be prepared and say, oh, I know she's going to ask me about this, so there's this article I wanted to bring or this whatever. Absolutely. And it also allows them to say even beforehand send a message out saying, hey, my family's all going to be here at 4 o'clock today, and I can you know, do my best to be there right about that time instead of randomly popping in at 2 o'clock when nobody's there. So it actually should make our time more efficient and hopefully give them more information versus what we see now. I walk out of the room and uh, the family, you know, go, oh, I meant to ask. And, you know, hopefully we can reduce those, oh, I meant to ask, and increase their knowledge of what's going on. And and solve all their questions for them. Well, we have younger generations growing up with expectations of, ha of all of this being electronic, right? I mean, you, you go on your phone and on an app to order your dinner at Panera and you pick it up without having to interact with, you know, it's just easy to do that. And maybe the expectation is becoming that medicine will be more like that. And we certainly are going to make sure that we implement these technologies in a way that doesn't interrupt with the human touch and the human connections that we make. But there certainly is a lot of communication that occurs and waiting for things that occur that we don't think the patient should have to um, have to delay for us again, whether it's you know, waiting to ask for a drink or whether it's waiting to ask a question. If they have a question, then we should be able to know that and come in uh, as soon as it's as soon as we're, as soon as it's possible. Well, now security um, of all of this information becomes a paramount right responsibility. Oh, absolutely. So, and we and and we can take all the steps that we know of to take, but we still we hear about these big data bre breaches from time to time with credit cards or whatever at different companies. Um, what are we doing to protect and make sure that all of this is safe? Yeah, so, so the 
hospital has, and our, indeed our health system has, uh, spent significant amount of time, and we spend significant resources, ensuring to the best of uh, ability of, of current day knowledge that we are providing as much security and safety to all of our patients. It's, it's one of our most important um, pieces of, of, of information technology. Uh, we uh, install a number or use a number of services to help us do that. We have a whole group of people whose jobs are just dedicated to maintaining the security and safety of our information. And both we and the uh, company which creates our electronic medical record, Epic Systems, do numerous checks and, and balances to make sure that all the data that we have on our patients is maintained in a way that is absolutely as safe as it possibly can be. Do you foresee a day when these um, implantable devices or wearable devices will connect electronically to? I think that day is already here. Really? Um, so many people wear devices, whether they're step counters or whatever, uh, Apple's devices measure heart rate. There's always talk about new sensors coming out, uh, glucometers that our diabetes patients uh, mm. now wear full-time um, you know, um, on their arm or on another extremity and give real-time data. All of that information is information that becomes available for us to bring in, again, at the patient's uh, consent, but able to bring into to our system and use so that we can see, you know, what happened last night, what happened a month ago, and how, did the, how, how has your health been changing over time? And again, and it empowers the patient also to have ownership of their own health and, be, and hopefully be ahead of us in helping their health improve. Well, there is a lot of room for information coming in, so. Well, thank you so much for being here to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Neil Seidberg. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, have you chosen the right healthcare proxy? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. What happens when a daughter wants to keep her father alive so he can sign over his house to her? In this segment, I'll ask a pair of ethics experts from Upstate. Here in the studio with me are two professors of bioethics and humanities who are part of the team at Upstate that provides ethics consults in a variety of patient situations. Dr. Thomas Curran, who has a background in neonatology and pediatrics, and Dr. Robert Ulick, who specializes in law, end-of-life issues, and physician-patient relationships. Thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks. you. So, Dr. Curran, um, can you give sort of background situation on this? Sure. And I, I always mention at the outset that these uh, cases have been de-identified to protect the patient confidentiality, so uh, the, the story is... Uh, fairly host very closely to a consult that we did, but the, uh, it is de-identified. So in this case, Mr. W was a 75-year-old male who had dementia, 
and metastatic stage four lung cancer. And he had been admitted to the hospital with respiratory distress that was thought to be second, secondary to either evolving lung cancer, which would obviously be terrible, or potentially an infection like a pneumonia. Uh, he did not have decisional capacity, but he did have a healthcare proxy who was his daughter, uh, Tina. And despite his grim prognosis, uh, Tina was unwilling to change uh, his code status to do not resuscitate. Uh, she was put the brakes on. And she was hopeful that he would recover enough to be able to drop a will and sign over his house to her. Uh, this caught the attention of the healthcare team, as you may imagine, and they consulted us to explore what was motivating the healthcare proxy's decision making. So without this DNR, or do not resuscitate order, the medical team is obligated to... If your heart stops, team? you're obligated to provide in heart, you know, chest compressions and, car and cardiovascular medications and all those sorts of things. So the medical team was in agreement, though, that this patient, that that wouldn't bring was, them back. They weren't coming back from stage four lung cancer. Medical care, the medical team's opinion was that he was, he was irreversibly sick and okay. was not going to recover. He was going to die, no matter okay. what anyone said about anything. That was their opinion. Okay. Uh, can a person who has all of their faculties complete the paperwork for a DNR? Is it part of an advanced directive, Dr. Olin? Um Sure. If you have all of your faculties, as you say, or to use the, um, the term that's used around the hospital and in some of the law, if the patient has decisional capacity, then they can make any and all healthcare decisions for themselves, including uh, requesting and uh, ordering a, or should say requesting a DNR order, which would then be ordered by the doctor uh, at the direction of the patient. Um, and in this case, though the patient had lost decisional capacity, the healthcare proxy can make that decision as well um, based upon, first and foremost, the patient's own wishes. So we should first say in this case that um, proxy was laboring under a misperception that the patient could uh, write a will to um, leave the house to her. Um, under law, the person who writes a testamentary will to dispose of their property also has to have capacity or to use the legal term competence to do so. And in this case, there was no question that that opportunity had been lost um, for that to happen. But the fact that the proxy had some reason to refuse a DNR order that was not directly related to the patient's own wishes and best interests in the judgment of the healthcare team raised red flags for them, and that triggered the ethics consult. So what do you do in that situation? Well, as we do in many cases, we arranged for a sit-down meeting between the healthcare proxy and the members of the healthcare team so that we could, one, uh, discuss had it, we always start off with having the medical team say, where, what is the current medical situation? What is the most likely outcome? So that there's clear information. Healthcare proxy, in order to make an informed decision, needs to know all the medical facts. Okay, and so sure. that's the role of the, of the uh, medical team. And then typically we'll step in and talk about what did um, Mr. W and you talk about with regards to his wishes. When you're, you are charged with representing his wishes, what, what, do you, what can you tell us about that? And, and it's interesting to, to me how frequently that will change the subject of what the healthcare proxy has been talking about because they put that hat on of, I'm representing this person, not what I would do. And it, it facilitates um, 
whatever information that they may have uh, talked about uh, prior to losing capacity. And in this case, that's, that's what we did. So the proxy has to, uh, I, I imagine it'd be easy to slip into the role of what the proxy wants. You're talking about someone that you loved, and you know, but really their role is to represent what that person wanted, not what they want, but what that person wanted, right? Right, absolutely. And uh, healthcare proxies who are typically family members um, will struggle with this. They'll have a difficult time, in some cases, letting go. They'll have a difficult time balancing what the patient wants with what the best interests of the patient may be, what the doctor's recommendation about the patient's best interest may be. Uh, and it, it can also be the case that uh, patients may have left um, inconsistent mm -hmm. indications of what their wishes sure. might be under circumstances. Um, to sort of hypothesize on this example, it clearly could have been the case that the patient had had a conversation with his daughter. I want to leave you the house. Don't let me die before I leave you the house. I want to have a will. But the opportunity has now been lost. And so to the extent um, the daughter might be trying to act on that, um, that goal can no longer be achieved because the patient has clearly lost the ability to do that. And so now is the time to move off of that goal uh, and look at the patient's medical condition uh, more exclusively in terms of what he would want. Do you sometimes, uh, and this is kind of stepping away from this case, but you, you made me think of when you talk about a proxy, is it sometimes wise to choose someone who's not a family member? And do you see that where people choose someone who's a little less passionate maybe? or, I mean, you could have a physician be your proxy, right? Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, the, the fundamental concept is you want to pick someone you trust. Okay. to faithfully implement your wishes. Um, under the law and under common practice, that can be most anybody you choose who's over 18 and capable of handling that responsibility. Um, but it does happen in families that maybe one member of the family, perhaps the spouse or a child, um, really isn't the person you want to choose because you don't think they can handle the emotional, social, psychological burdens of making that decision to say when enough is enough when the time comes. So you might choose someone else who you think is better positioned, better equipped uh, to make that sort of decision. Now, you may not want to choose your doctor because of the potential conflict of interest. So the law will typically say if you want to choose your doctor, who for some people would be a good choice, they may have known their doctor for a long period of time, the doctor needs to choose which role they're going to have. Mm. Either, Either proxy he or she or is your doctor or your proxy, but not both at the same time. That's why okay. I say maybe. Okay. Well, that yeah. makes sense. But certainly the, the lion's share of proxies are family Our members. Are family members. Yeah. I, I, in my, I know in my own parents' case, they've named my sister and I as their proxies. I have three other siblings. Uh, my sister and I are medical, and my parents trust us to be able to balance what they think is important and the medical information. And so that so that's how they selected us versus the other three, uh, who they feel who they love deeply, of course, but are not medical, and they don't think that they have the skill set, or the maximal sure. skill set to, to wade through those sorts of complicated issues. So. so, so Tom's example raises another practical point, which is that it's often recommended that you choose one person, not two. Not two. You can choose. You should choose it an alternate in case your first choice is unable to um, 
serve in that capacity. And you can direct your proxy to uh, consult with other members of the family. But if you choose two proxies with joint and co-equal authority, it means one can veto the other. Uh, and you can have a, a deadlock and an inability to make a decision. A fair point. Yes. Yeah. I think it'll work out. <laughs> I'm sure it won't happen in Tom's family, though. Now, in this case that we're discussing, um, when you come in as an ethics consultant, um, do you look at the proxy's motivation for what they're wanting? Is that part of it? Absolutely. And it, it, yes. And I, I will, I've, I've done a case where the healthcare proxy was actually signing the patient's um, pension checks over to herself while the patient was in the hospital and she would not make the patient, she would not, it was her father, wouldn't make him DNR, and it came to light that she was basically committing a crime. Mm -hmm. The bar to remove a healthcare proxy is high, but that you've, you've made it over the bar when you're you, committing a crime. Okay. Uh, and so, so those are, they're, they're, it's, but it's unusual for healthcare proxies to have nefarious motivations. It, most frequently, at least in my experience, when the healthcare team is concerned about the healthcare proxy's motivation, it's usually due to inadequate communication where the healthcare proxy doesn't actually understand exactly what's going on. Okay. Well, we've read about cases um, in the news where people have been kept alive on machines for long periods of time, um, sort of against medical recommendation. Is there a way for patients to make sure their proxy doesn't do that if they don't want that? Well, as, as Tom was saying, it, it's a rare case, but it does happen that we have the term of art being a turncoat proxy who uh, <laughs> rebels against uh, implementing the patient's wishes. Uh, it is sometimes believed that whatever the proxy says goes, that there's an absolute duty to honor the proxy's decisions, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so healthcare professionals do have an obligation to um, ensure and examine whether the proxy is uh, following their primary fiduciary duty, which again is to uh, follow the patient's wishes uh, and secondarily to act in the patient's best interest. So we do see cases where the proxy seems to be not following the patient's wishes and that, that can be uh, possibly rather clear especially if there's some ill motive with, with a turncoat proxy, but, but in other cases as well. And that's another occasion for an ethics consult, a family meeting, a discussion, and um, informing um, in a clear way the healthcare proxy that it is their responsibility that they've been tasked with by their loved one to implement um, their loved one's wishes, the patient's wishes. If the patient puts in writing what their wishes are, does the proxy have to follow it because it's written, or does the proxy get to kind of say what they want? Uh, putting it in writing um, gives greater assurance that your wishes will be followed, uh, but it is possible that uh, other surrounding circumstances um, will cast some doubt on whether the written document um, tells us everything we need to know. Um, that happens especially in cases where that document may have been written many years ago. Uh, and oh. not in contemplation of the patient's current circumstances. Sure. Um, statements of the patient's wishes that are more contemporaneous, closer in time to the patient's current circumstances, contemplating those circumstances more clearly, giving a better fit, um, uh, are more reliable and, and um, easier to, to follow. 
I think Rob would agree that what it highlights is the importance of picking your proxy well, because this is a situation you don't want to be in. You want to, be, want to have a document that says, I don't, you know, I don't want to live on a ventilator for the rest of my life, and your healthcare proxy saying, no, they would. I mean, you want to have your healthcare right. proxy say, this is what he wrote, this is what they told me, this is what we're going to do. That's critical. Right. Well, tell us how this resolved. Did she end up getting the house? This was, this, this was, one of, I was such a great consult. So we had, I went to the, to the meeting with the healthcare team, and, I, and like I said, the healthcare team gave the prognosis that there was no reasonable hope for recovery and, and that this was not going to get better. And it, it was literally a five-minute meeting. The healthcare proxy, Tina, said, well, Dad would never want, he told me he didn't, wouldn't want to live that way. He, he, you know, he, he's, he's not going to wake up. He's not going to get better. He's not going to be able to get his legal affairs in order. Well, I'm sorry that that's the case. Of course, we'll make, you know, let's go to comfort care. Mm -hmm. And the healthcare team looked shocked because they thought that this person had some sort of nefarious motivation, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. She loved her father deeply, and she wanted to do what he re requested. And, mm -hmm. and, that, and he, was, he was put on comfort care, and, and I, I think in this situation, as I said before, we helped the proxy get the information needed to make an informed decision from the healthcare team. And it seems like it comes down to communication, like you said, Almost a lot of all the time. It's amazing, wow. yes. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for bring, sharing this case with us. Appreciate it. My guests have been Drs. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick, both professors from Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, how much cobalt is in your diet? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cobalt is part of vitamin B12, and our guest today is a nutrition expert who says cobalt has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that are underappreciated. We have on the telephone with us from his home in Florida, Upstate Emeritus Professor Dr. Michael McGeed, who is also the Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of the journal Nutrition, the International Journal of Applied and Basic Nutritional Sciences. Thank you for talking with me today. I am delighted to be with you. So cobalt, uh, I thought cobalt was a shade of blue, but you're telling us it's part of vitamin B12. Um, yes, indeed. So what is it Let exactly? Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, uh, cobalt uh, is an amazingly blue color, and to this day I still collect uh, pieces of cobalt when I glass with cobalt in it. But it also can be green, and it can be... Um, deep rose color, and a deep rose color is a cobalt hydrate or cobalt chloride. And so you can imagine we use this product in the homes uh, to detect the presence of water. So it's uh, a moisture detector uh, in our homes. Now, regarding cobalt um, as a, uh, to do with vitamin A, uh, excuse me, vitamin B12, 
we really need cobalt as an, uh, very essential for life in the minimum amounts, and is, therefore it's classified as an ultra-trace element. And it's used in the body to help absorb and process vitamin B12. So an ultra, uh, uh, it, it's, what did you say, ultra-rare? Ultra-trace element. Trace. Okay, so there's not, not much part of it. On, uh, yeah, and it's not part of the uh, uh, periodic table. It's outside the periodic table because it's an ultra ultra-trace element. So it's a, it's a metal? It is a metal, and it is mined in very certain parts of the world. It is mined in uh, primarily in the Congo, in China, in Zambia, in Russia, and in Australia. And it is now found in high concentrations in these strange nodules that we all have seen on TV on National Geographic that sit at the bottom of the ocean which are now being mined uh, in, off the coast of um, islands in the Pacific. So the cobalt on the bottom of the oceans, is, is it being mined for nutritional use, or is, is it used for other things? It's mined for other things that I'd like to get to uh, after we deal with the nutritional things. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so what does cobalt do in our bodies? Okay. It combines with an amino acid and therefore becomes a cobalamin, which is a coenzyme, and that is better known as B12. And B12 is essential to maintain human health because it assists in the production of hemoglobin, an essential building block of the red blood cells that carry oxygen throughout our body. Okay. And B12 helps regulate cells. Uh, helps regulate cell development and therefore DNA and energy production in the body. Scoville also has uh, helps in the repair of the myelin sheath, which are the sheaths that go around nerves and protects these nerve cells. So together with uh, uh, B12, cobalt helps regulate and stimulate the body to produce certain enzyme and hormones, including that very important hormone thyroxin, which regulates our energy in the body, thyroxine produced by the thyroid. Uh, and uh, now we are uh, discovering antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. Interesting. If a person uh, is deficient in their uh, cobalt or B12, how would they, they know? I mean, what, what sorts of symptoms would they see in their body if they don't have enough of this? Right. The primary... Uh, symptomatology of cobalt uh, deficiency is B12 deficiency, which leads to something called pernicious anemia, so that uh, these individuals have very low hemoglobin, very low red blood cell counts, and therefore feel tired and fatigued all the time. And the treatment for that is to give them B12 injections every month. On a, on a regular basis. Okay. Is there a danger of having too much B12 or too much cobalt in your system? Yes. Cobalt can be dangerous. Cobalt poisoning is well known in the industrial uh, era and also in every day. So let me go over some of the uh, uh, co- cobalt intoxication, for example, uh, occurs if you uh, breathe too much of it 
in into your lungs, or if you swallow it, or it comes in contact with the skin. And this is important in in minors, and it is also important in the construction work because cobalt is found in uh, in cement, in the tiles we put on our roofs, uh, and other things. Now, more recently, we've had cobalt poisoning in humans, which has occurred from the wear and tear of some cobalt chromium metal on metal metal on metal hip implants. Oh. And um, these are the old implants we, uh, one used to use, and they're now being replaced by porcelain ones. So you may have friends who are having a hip replacement, and they're having old ones removed and new ones put in. Yes. In the, every day, we have cobalt allergies. And um, <clears throat> ingesting B12, ingesting too much of B12 as a vitamin, for example, can cause intractable hand eczema in some patients. Hand and eczema, it, is that like a rash? A rash, yeah, a rash on the hand, a red rash on the hand which peels off. Okay. okay? Uh, and it's limited to the palms of the hand. Um, and it's also obtained when you're on contact with uh, um, cobalt is being very strong is mixed with other um, metals to make them stronger primary nickel and nickel is used a lot in uh, jewelry so that one sees women who have pierced ears are presum- presumably men now as well and who are, who are wearing earrings uh, that are primarily nickel which contains cobalt and therefore show a little red ring around uh, where the ear is pierced. Uh, And that is due to uh, cobalt sensitivity or cobalt um, uh, allergy. Well, interesting. Let me let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate Emeritus Professor Dr. Michael McGeed. He's also the Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition, the International Journal of Applied and Basic Nutritional Sciences. And our topic is cobalt and its role in normal health. Dr. McGeed, uh, now your training, your background is as a surgeon. How did you get into nutrition? Uh, I got into nutrition because I had uh, cancer patients where the operation was successful, but the patients would uh, be malnourished and eventually succumb. So I went to MIT for three years to get a PhD in clinical nutrition to learn about clinical nutrition so that I could help my uh, patients. So I wanted to find where cobalt, what, what food sources cobalt is found in naturally. Yeah. If we eat a normal balanced diet uh, that contains fish, nuts, green leafy vegetables such as broccoli and spinach, we will get an adequate amount of cobalt for vitamin B12 production, for thyroxin production, uh, and now we are finding for antioxidant, anti-inflammatory uh, production. All right. And so most Americans do get an adequate supply in the food? Absolutely. However, there are some soils where crops are grown and uh, where the, which are deficient in cobalt. So that um, in New Zealand, 
where sheep were grazing, they developed a very strange uh, rash on their body, a very strange uh, rash on the body, yeah. and it was called bush sickness. And they discovered that the animals were grazing on volcanic soil which lacked cobalt salts, uh, which is essential in food chain for the animals. And also in South Australia, they found um, animals who were deficient in cobalt uh, because of the land was inefficient in cobalt, uh, insufficient in cobalt. Uh, they treated this by giving them cobalt bullets, which is cobalt uh, mixed in with clay, and they were given orally to the, to the animals. Interesting. Well, you mentioned, though, if someone is deficient, there's vitamin B12 shots or there there's supplements, vitamin B12 supplements. Are there simply cobalt supplements? No. Okay. You can find them online, and they may be very toxic. So uh, this is not something that one needs to go to a food store, but one needs to go to the – or to uh, – on the Internet, one needs to go to a – um, registered dietitian or a physician who's interested in nutrition who can guide the patient where to go. Well, if someone is seeking an antioxidant or if someone's seeking sort of treatment for as an anti-inflammatory, is B12 or, or cobalt supplements, is that a good solution? Since cobalt sits in the middle of B12, it's the primary uh, source of uh, cobalt in, in, in uh, the body where it's stored in the B12. Um, there have now been some studies on individual patients who have been very septic in the ICU and in whom uh, the regular antibiotics for infection have not helped. And therefore, physicians, primarily on the West Coast, have come up with a whole series of concoctions to treat these patients successfully, which have included B12 shots. So they're now using B12 in uh, rare instances to enhance uh, the uh, immune system in these very dangerous diseases, these superbugs that uh, that uh, resist antibiotic, uh, that are antibiotic resistant. Oh, interesting. And they're seeing some success with that? Yes, they are. Patients are surviving. Now, these are anecdotes. These are case reports. And really, in humans, you need to do some epidemiological observations um, so that one doesn't give too much because cobalt in itself is also a human cancer risk. It can cause uh, cancers, uh, and you don't want to really be involved in that field. Sure. Sure. Well, you were going to talk about what else cobalt is used for. Right. There have, I just want to add that there have been some human cases of uh, ingesting too much cobalt. And in 1966, uh, cobalt was added to stabilize the beer form in Canada. Hmm. Uh, uh, in a particular form of uh, toxin-induced, and it led to a particular form of toxin-induced cardiomyopathy, which came to be known as beer drinker's cardiomyopathy. So, uh, yes, cobalt is regulated by the FDA. It's regulated according to its concentration required for B12, and now we're going slightly, uh, giving slightly more to fight infection. Uh, and to stimulate antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. 
So cobalt is no longer added to beer to reduce the foam? No. Okay. All right. It's used in industry as well, though? It's used in industry uh, for lithium batteries, for electric cars, for cell phones, uh, and it's therefore uh, become a very precious metal, uh, and its importance as a metal will increase in time. Uh, it's also used, uh, for example, in special steels, very uh, rust-proof, high-tensile steel, which comes, which we import from Australia. And so if we have steel tariffs, uh, we are sort of hurting ourselves because we cannot produce that in this country. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for this interesting information. Um, my guest has been Dr. Michael McGeed. He's Upstate Emeritus Professor and Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition, the International Journal of Applied and Basic Nutritional Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Gloria Heffernan teaches at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Her latest book is called Some of Our Parts, and it can be found at Finishing Line Press. In her poem, A Greening of Sorts, she celebrates the slow but steady arrival of healing. It only appears to happen suddenly, the voluptuous explosion of green leaves painting the hillside that April morning, when just a day earlier the trees looked like a child's drawing of stick figures. But it wasn't one sudden lavish brushstroke. The buildup was gradual, first a dull red bud barely visible on the tip of the branch, and then the hull of the bud broke away, and underneath a pale green kernel ripened unnoticed for days. And still it seemed the buds would never fill out into something resembling a maple leaf, until that morning when you looked out the kitchen window over the rim of your coffee cup, and there it was, evidence that spring had kept its promise. That's what it was like when the green and yellow capsule finally made its presence known. It only seemed sudden when I found myself speaking without choking back tears, when I could drive the car without fearing a truck might be hidden in my blind spot, when I could watch the news without feeling I was swallowing poison. A month or so of imperceptible progress, a gradual balancing of serotonin, a slow surrender to the reality that depression is an illness, not a character defect. And in what seems like only a moment, the grip of winter loosens its hold on my throat. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what to expect if you or someone you love faces cardiac surgery. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.